The following message is distributed by the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we can come this morning with that promise that you will hold us fast. Lord, many, many of us come uh, into this morning um, from a week of, of chaos and, and challenges and ups and downs, um, but Lord, in the end, you still reign as God, and we can come here as your people to gather, to hear from you, to be encouraged. And Lord, I, I pray this morning as we look at this passage of Hebrews 11, Lord, that you would grow us in faith. You would give us a vision to, to see you, to know you, to know that you are alive and well and you hold all things in your hands. And Lord, that our faith is rooted in such a great reality of who you are and what you promise. So Lord, would you increase our faith this morning? Um, Lord, would you use just mere words of, of me, Lord, an insignificant man to point at glorious realities of, of who you are and what you are doing in us and through us. So Lord, be with us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, growing up, and especially the early years of my maturing Christian life, I've been uh, shaped by the power of story and specifically just the power of biography. There's been a number of, of men in particular, but people that I've been able to read and, and different aspects of their lives have, have captivated me. So men like Martin Lloyd-Jones, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a missionary Adoniram Judson, Pastor George Mueller. You look at different stories of, of these men and, and of their lives, and, and all of them have very unique giftings, very unique callings. But even more than that is what's incredible is God's faithfulness in them and through them. And all these all these men live in times uh, that are difficult and trying circumstances. And in that, their, their greatness is not necessarily in, in their strengths or who they are as people, but their greatness is in their God that they walk with and rely on. And so there's something about someone's life, a biography that resonates with us, that sits with us, that gives us an example of, of the do's and don'ts. And that, it's been significantly influential in my Christian life of, of shaping me. But ultimately, we have a whole Bible full of biography, full of, of people that God is working in and through. And ultimately, the, the Bible is a biography about God with many supporting characters Yet it's through these many supporting characters and their strengths and weaknesses that they point to and they illustrate the ultimate realities re regarding God, our purpose, and what it means to have faith. So uh, this morning, our lead pastor, Pastor Steve, is uh, off for a couple weeks, and so we're going to be taking a break uh, from our series in Matthew. And I'm going to be starting a new series as I have opportunity to preach, looking at Hebrews 11. Um, a number of weeks back, I preached a sermon on, on Hebrews 10, uh, titled Faith and the Faithful God. And here we're going to jump into uh, Hebrews 11 in a, a series that will stand under the title of, of Faith Alone. And in this, we're going to look at this chapter, which is commonly known as the Hall of Faith. And if you've got it open or glancing at it or familiar with it, it goes through a lot of the early Old Testament history of how different people in our history have lived by faith 
and it commends them, and, and, and God commends them in, in what they've done and who they are. And, and so, with this, we're going to go um, just take basically one person or one setting at a time and look at some of the historical context that that sits in and see why does the author of Hebrews commend their faith? And how does that biography, that illustration of their life, tell us something about God? And then how does that encourage us in our own faith walk? So that's what we're going to be looking at. A um, little background, the book of Hebrews is ultimately a book about faith. Um, it's written to encourage Christians who are experiencing trials at the hands of both uh, historic Judaism, which they've branched off from with uh, the, the testimony of the gospel and what Jesus had done. So they stand between that, but they're also experiencing trials of a hostile Roman empire at the time. And so with that, amidst those trials, there's a temptation for the members of the church to drift away, to drift away from the message of Jesus that's embodied in the gospel, to drift away from their corporate identity in the gathering church. And so what Hebrews is trying to do, what the author here is trying to do, is he's trying to point people to faith in God to get through these different circumstances and trials and pressures in and around their life. So with that, um, the first 10 chapters of Hebrews lay a foundation, ultimately of how Christ is God's answer to man's predicament. So it, it talks, laying a, a very rich theology of who Christ is, the significant, his significance, his godhood, him as the high priest who is atoned for our sins. And all of this, it, it lays out uh, who Christ is to make clear that he is the long-anticipated offspring from Genesis 3 that is going to come and conquer death and sin and evil and make things right. And that Jesus himself is the embodiment or the fulfillment of all of God's promises throughout the Old Testament. So as we look at Jesus, who is God himself, our gaze will be uh, drawn to the faithful God who has long been pursuing a plan to restore his people to himself. So in Hebrews, as we come to 11, chapter 11 here, it's meant to call us and point the church, is to point us to faith and endurance. And uh, it provides examples of how faith endures through the hope of God. So as we go through the series, we'll look at men who have exhibited faith and been commended by God. So you've got a Bible with you. Open up to Hebrews chapter 11, near the back of the Bible. And we'll read verses 1 through 4 here together. It says this, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. The word of the Lord. So this morning, we're going to look at the question, what is faith? Then we're going to look at a picture of faith uh, as represented by the life of Abel. And then we're going to uh, look at a couple lessons and applications from, from the life of Abel. So the first question here, what is faith? So here in verse 1, this is the closest thing we can find to a definition of faith in the Bible. And now this definition is not exhaustive, but it, it is super helpful to clarify some things of what, what faith is. So at the beginning we see it says, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So in reading this definition, I've, I've long had the tendency to think that faith must be something that we internally muster up, that uh, assurance or conviction is a reality that I need to create and sustain, that faith is something that I must do. 
And I think there's a temptation that in the world, and especially the recent Western world, we can look at some of this language of the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, and think the idea that if we hope in something, and if we have just enough assurance and just enough confidence, it'll bring itself about. It'll be a self-fulfilling prophecy that we, we can have faith and, and make it real. But here I think that's a, that kind of reading of this is, is, is a twisting of, of what's actually meant. And so as we come to the word or the idea of, of assurance of things hoped for and conviction of things not seen, both of these statements are, are uh, mirroring the same reality. They're both trying to fill in and point us to something here. So the idea of assurance, other words that we could use for that is reality, certainty, foundation, substance. One uh, commentator uses the word of a title or deed in the sense that we have the, a title deed of, of things hoped for. So it's like it's a guarantee, a reality. So when we think of assurance of things hoped for, maybe a way to flip that around is to think of hope-filled certainty, hope-filled reality. And then we come to the second phrase, uh, conviction of things not seen. Other words for conviction might be evidence or proof. And so the way we could flip that around is to think evidential proof of the unseen. But in both of these statements, what they point to ultimately is that there is an objective reality of faith. So when we're talking about assurance and conviction, we're looking at that there is something that can be known with some degree of certainty, but there's a reality of that we can't, we can't see it all, and so how it plays in, out in our life is a little complex at times. And so faith, in the end, faith is something that we, object, it's an objective reality it's not created or sustained inside of man. Faith is ultimately a response to who God is. And so kind of a working definition that I'm going to add alongside to this is that faith is a God consciousness to see things as they really are and to believe him at his word. So faith is a God consciousness to see things as they really are and to believe him at his word. So we see this idea further supported in verse 3, where he says, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are, that are visible. So by faith we understand, we, we acknowledge, we know, we see. And so part one of this, faith embraces that God is the eternal creator. He is the one who created the universe by the power of his spoken word. Faith believes, verses 1 and 2 of Genesis 1, that when God spoke, things came into being, into existence. Things became real. God was before all things. So faith begins at the very foundational level that God exists and that everything that we can see and experience comes from him. The second part of this statement, it denies that there was some random, chaotic, prior existing matter or materials that predated God. And so this, this would be a kind of a, a philosophical conception that we would understand as a, 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 that Plato would have. It would be Platonic ph philosophy. And the idea that like matter and things created before God, and what God did is he came and he organized the matter and he put it to work and he created with it. And so the Hebrews author is kind of pulling this line to say, no, 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 that's, that's not wrong. And so the, the, the historic theological idea is that God created ex nihilo, which is just a, a Latin word that basically means out of nothing. So God of the universe, by the power of his word, created everything that we see out of nothing. And this idea is core and central to faith. And it is what grounds all things and all belief and all, all trust in God. And so, why, why is this important and essential? Well, biblical faith is not one's subjective experience in, what they, uh, in which they place something in which they think or hope to be true among the best options. Faith is an objective response and submission to the reality that there is a God of the universe 
that he has made himself known, and he's promised incredible things for those who believe and honor him. So, a way to illustrate this or to think about it, um, if I say, I hope that the Buffalo Bills win a Super Bowl this year, yep, I have a lot of faith, I believe that they can get it done, my son, he calls them the Fuffo Bills, which is so cute. The Fuffo Bills are going to win. But so if I use those words of I hope, I have faith, I believe, this is a subjective claim that places me, a finite small person here in Salt Lake City, Utah, as the grounds of a claim that it will be true. I have real no connection to the team and the ins and the outs of who they're going to play in the league. Uh, I certainly have no foreknowledge to substantiate a claim like that. I'm small. That's a very subjective claim. Now, contrast that. If God says, in a future day, the Buffalo Bills will win a Super Bowl, if God says that, because of who God is and his character, and the fact that he always fulfills his promises, I now have a more objective ground to believe that. And so in that objective ground, I, I can place my faith and hope in the, the fact that the Bills will win a Super Bowl. And this, this is often how faith in, in, in God works. God promises something, but that promise is not always imminent, meaning that it won't be fulfilled right away. So, if, if God truly did say that the Bills will win a Super Bowl, then faith comes into play when I consider the ups and downs of how history progresses and life plays itself out. So, if you're, if you're a Buffalo Bills fan, you know that in the 90s, they made it to the Super Bowl four years in a row. Did they win any of those Super Bowls? No. Tragic. There's a documentary on uh, ESPN, 30 for 30, if you want to go watch it. The four falls of Buffalo. So faith in that time would ground and secure. You think you're so close. We're so close. And isn't this so much of Israel's history with the kings? We're so close. We almost got it. And then no, tragic fall, tragic fall, tragic fall. But where God makes a promise, it holds security through that. And so then faith, you know, if God said the Bills will win a Super Bowl, I'd have faith, you know, when... Uh, uh, in the playoffs this last year when the Bills had the game clinched and then the last 13 seconds they let the Kansas City Chiefs come back. And I bring that up because there's six Chiefs fans, you know, here in this room right now that like to rub that in. There it is, yep. I'd have faith when last week our quarterback, once we get the ball, we have the lead, fumbles the ball in the end zone, giving the other team a touchdown, and they take the lead and go on and win the game. A faith with the setbacks and ups and downs of life, a faith that God speaks something grounds me that when something drops and something is hard, I can have hope and faith that it will work out in some way at some time. So amidst the ups and downs, someone can remain steadfast in faith in the objective reality of God's promise, knowing that one day God will bring the bills to a Super Bowl victory. I can have a, a hope-filled certainty. There's evidential proof of the unseen that this will become true because God said so. Now, this illustration is utterly, utterly ridiculous because nowhere in God's word does he say or guarantee that the Bills will win a Super Bowl. In fact, football is a ridiculous and silly game in comparison to the glorious realities that are spoken of in the Bible. There's way more at stake when it comes to faith in God as opposed to faith in the passing trivialities of, of life. Yet, sadly, this is where I and many of us here in this room often tend to live. And here's the reality about faith. Everyone lives by faith. We do it one way or another. But the difference is that not everyone's faith is anchored in an objective reality in person, Yahweh, God of the Bible. And sadly, many of us live in the subjective reality of faith, grounding our hopes and dreams on things that will not last, 
things that we think will bring about joy and life and happiness. For me, is just talking about the Bills, that's often sports. I stayed up late watching the Utes lose a heart wrenching or lose a heart-wrenching game last night to end their season. My hope was shattered. I put my faith in the wrong thing. I was let down by it. But biblical faith seeks to be aligned and find one's entire purpose and being in the personal God of the universe. So faith is a God consciousness to see things as they really are and to believe him at his word. So What's the end goal of faith in God? Well, verse 2 shows us that the, the end goal here of faith is the commendation of God. So what, what is this commendation? The commendation here, uh, it comes from the Greek word of martyr, martyrio, which if you hear martyr in that, that should stand out. Martyr is the same word of like the idea of, of a witness. So we usually hear the context of people as martyrs or witnesses for God and his work. But in this context, the word is used of God, who himself, like going into a court scene and taking the stand to testify, he provides a testimony in favor of his people, to testify of his pleasure and approval and acceptance of those who live by faith. So ultimately, the end, the end goal of faith, the end result that we desire is that we would be commended and approved by God, that he would look and say, this one is mine. And so it's by faith that the people of old here that we're going to look at a number of their lives, they've been commended. And it's by faith that we can find our own commendation, commendation and approval by God that allows us to enter into his presence forevermore. So I just spent a lot of time before this speaking of the objective nature of faith. But in the end, faith is not just a a static theological proposition or concept. Instead, faith is ultimately one's experience of a relationship with a faithful God, with a being, with a person. And the rest of Hebrews 11 is meant to illustrate and put into picture and to picture form the many faces and circumstances in which faith is played out. So it's my hope and prayer that as we look at the people of old, that we will be individually and corporately encouraged in our different and differing faith journeys. So we're now going to turn our attention to the first man on earth who was commended by God for his faith. So a picture of faith, look at the life of Abel here. So um, if you've got your Bible, go ahead and flip over to Genesis 4, and we're going to go look at the original context in which uh, the story of Cain and Abel shows up. So I'll read verses, uh, chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, and if you just want to listen, it's a story, it's easy to follow. Okay, verse 1 says this, Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. 
And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. So here we get a, a glimpse of the life of, of Cain and Abel. And the big question here, as we look at this, is why was Abel's offering regarded and not Cain's? So we see that they both bring an offering according to their different lines of work. So we see that Cain, he's a farmer, a worker of the ground. See that Abel is, is a shepherd. He's a keeper of sheep. And so both of them bring an offering. And, and as we think about uh, what later comes through the Old Testament law, that there's a place for both grain and animal sacrificings or grain or produce offerings and animal offerings. So it do- doesn't seem that there would be a preference of animal over grain, right? So we can take both of those things and, and, and both, both have, have a time and place. Uh, some people have suggested that perhaps Cain's offering wasn't rightly prepared. Maybe there was some process that, that Abel rightly prepared the offering and then Cain didn't follow that same process. But at this time, too, there's, there's no context for Old Testament law or requirement for what's to be done. So that, that would be something that we can't quite impose there. And as we look, according to the order of the narrative, Cain is actually the first one to bring an offering. So I, I don't know if that's his idea and then Abel follows suit. But to his credit, Cain is the one that goes, he goes first bringing an offering. And it... it it says there, after some time, that probably implies that he's bringing something near the time of harvest, right? And so, a, a typical pattern in, in, in ancient life, and especially biblical, biblical times, there'd be a, a harvest time. There'd be some festivals around that. But in that, uh, Cain probably gets a harvest and then takes some and offers that to God. But Abel also brings his as well. So this, this opens the question, so if there's not any qualitative difference between what they're bringing, it opens the question to motive for Cain and his offering. Is there a different motive that he had? And so what was different between the two offerings? What can we see about motive? And here there's a clue where we see Abel brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. So one, one small detail there, uh, firstborn is plural, so like firstborns, right? And so Abel is bringing in a, an abundant uh, uh, offering that's plural, firstborns, sheep. And then also he's bringing their fat portions, which historically is the quality part of the offering and the sacrifice. So there's, there's a qualitative component of Abel's offering that he is bringing his first He's bringing his best, ultimately recognizing that all things are from God. In contrast, Cain was simply, it says, his was simply an offering of the fruit of the ground. So we're left to deduce that it's likely uh, for Cain it was not his first fruits. Instead, it was something that he had left over. And in the end, ultimately, Abel's offering was regarded by God because there's something qualitative about his heart, his God consciousness to give back what is due to God. And then there's something inherently in Cain's offering that is not right, that is off. So in some unknown way, God puts his hand on Abel's offering and rejects Cain's. So the story goes on to Cain's response and the following consequences. So, so, uh, so in response to God's regard for Abel's offering and the lack of regard for Cain's, says that Cain was very angry and his face fell. So you can just imagine this. It's, it's a sense where he's a hunched, kind of blank stare, seething anger, full of jealousy, full of covet. It was his idea after all. He's the one that brought an initial offering and you know, his little brother tagged along and brought a better one. He feels that something wrong has been done here and he's angry. 
And so the Lord acknowledges Cain's state of anger, and he questions him, saying, why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. So in that, God acknowledges his pain, acknowledges his anger. And it seems, as we look at this a little closer, the the statement of, if you do well, will you not be accepted? It seems to imply that God hasn't actually closed the door on Cain's opportunity to bring an acceptable offering. Cain, it seems that the door is to open that if Cain were to come back and offer something of his first fruits, God would accept it. And so God, God, he acknowledges that there's an internal battle of contrary desires inside of Cain. The rule of sin versus the self-control to rule over sin, right? So there, there's this, this battle of who's going to rule. Is it going to be sin or is it going to be what, what God has intended for man to be? And Cain is overcome by anger and sin and he allows it to rule over him. So Cain approaches Abel to speak with him, and it ends with murder in a field, with the blood of Abel going down into the field, which is ironically the place where Cain brought his offering from. So here we see a similar order of events that kind of mirrors what actually happens in the garden scene. We see that God approaches someone who's just, uh, who's amidst a broken, negative, sinful posture, right? Adam and Eve hiding in shame in the garden. Cain, angry, crestfallen because, because of this. God approaches them uh, and asks them a question. And then in both, in both of those texts, we find somewhere too that he addresses a contrary desire to rule or to be ruled over. And then in, in that, we see that there's a further cursing of the ground. So we see the similar story of sin play out, but with Cain, it drives an even further wedge between God and his people. So Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden, but then here are Cain and Abel still having some interaction with God, and in Cain's sin, he's, he's driven even further away from God a wedge that curses the ground even more, that pushes him away, that he no longer is even able to be in that realm of a home. So we see all this, yet we also see that God is merciful, and he does not exact retrib- retrib- I can't say that word, retributive justice in that moment, though Cain deserves it. And so, in all this, it's Abel's righteous blood that cries out from the ground, calling out for justice. And he's the first to be persecuted and to experience death in the Bible. And in the life of Cain, or the life of Abel, there's a deep and beautiful foreshadowing of an eventual greater death found here. A greater spilling of blood of a righteous one. So that's the story as we find it in Genesis. But as we turn back to Hebrews 11, what, is, what does the Hebrew author say? What is the summary that he gives of, of Abel? He says, By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. So now we're going to turn and look at a couple lessons and applications. What can we learn from the life of Cain or Abel? Story about Abel, not Cain. So the first one, by faith alone, one is commended as righteous. So by faith alone, one is commended as righteous. So here, as we look at Cain, Cain has a righteousness problem. 
something about him and his approach to God is not acceptable. And here's the reality is that we are all naturally born into Cain's problem. Though we may recognize there is a God, we don't come to him in faith offering our very best in recognition that God created all things and our existence is due to his goodwill and sustaining power. Like Cain, instead of giving thanks, we use religion and our efforts to try and manipulate or control God. We put on an external mask of good works that seems pious, but it lacks the heart of Abel. And the God of the universe, he sees through this. He's not fooled by a mere external action. He looks in and he sees the heart. And he doesn't desire offerings and works alone, but he desires a right relationship with his people. So the question for us to think through in our lives is, how do you attempt to appease God or gain his, his acceptance through religious actions? How do you do that? What are some of the things that you think, if I could only do this better, then God would love me more. If I could only do this better, then I would be more accepted by the people around me, finally get some respect around here. How do you attempt to appease God or gain his, his acceptance through religious actions? This is our default. We are always attentive to what God might think, what others might think. And so we need to check ourselves on that. But as we look at that, we can't just totally throw out actions, efforts, works. Because notice, Abel makes an offering. So actions and works aren't nothing. We see that his offering proceeds from faith. And he has a God consciousness that sees clearly that everything is a gift from God. And he seeks to live authentically beneath that reality. Faith is a heart orientation that ends in faithful obedience. Faith is a heart orientation that ends in faithful obedience. And so like Abel, we need our faith to be animated by love, by joy, by peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Think about how these attributes completely transform and fill one's act of obedience. So as an employee, a friend, a parent, we all have some kind of responsibility. We have some relationships around us. And rather than fulfilling the responsibility out of duty, how do we do that with a thankful heart, full of love and joy? Contrast this with religious duty. Duty that implies that I'm doing something so as to avoid some kind of consequence, whether that be social or legal or whatever. Religious duty is empty because it has an ulterior motive. But faith ultimately is animated by love and joy, and it's relationally oriented. In faith before God, it entrusts everything to God. We trust in a sovereign and good plan for, for us and, and, and for those around us. So by faith, Abel sees God out of the overflow of his heart. He offers the first fruits of the firstborn of his flock with the fat portions. Abel has a relational heart orientation towards God that is commended by God as righteous. And this is a gift. Where did Abel get this? It had to have come from God. We see how the rest of history plays out. And again, that is not a default. Cain, in his heart orientation, he was not righteous. He was full of religious duty that, exposed, that was exposed. And by the exposing of it, he was led to anger and to the murdering of his righteous brother. That's another thing for us to check. Where do you get angry? Where do you get upset by things that go wrong? What does that expose about your heart, your motivations? Track that back. It probably shows us that we have a relationship problem 
We have a heart orientation problem towards God and towards other people. Anger is a good dashboard light to investigate and see what's going on there. There's a war in our hearts. And this is drawn out by God's question as he pleads with Cain. And like I said earlier, Cain still has the option of being regarded, of having his sacrifice welcomed, accepted by God. There's nothing prohibiting him from coming back again and offering his first fruits. But that's not what happens. And apart from God's grace, this doesn't happen naturally in our hearts either. Acceptance and forgiveness are only found when we come to the end of ourselves, recognizing that our efforts cannot gain us anything. We need a heart that truly longs for God rather than one that succumbs to our selfish desires, believing that we can find elsewhere, life elsewhere and on our own terms. We need our eyes open and our hearts softened to receive the gift of faith and furthermore the, to experience God's grace. The gift of faith. This is something we've got to ask God for. And one thing I, I've thought about recently is, is thought about a lot of the deconstruction movement that's happening in, in the church and in our society and I think a lot of people that are leaving the church, they leave the church angry, and in some cases, they're leaving churches that they ought to leave because there's horrendous things that have happened <laughs> in the name of God with bad leadership. So there, there's, there's uh, some legitimate reasons there. But I think in general, for much of the deconstruction movement, there, there's a, a leaving because someone in that, in that context hasn't, experienced the gift of faith to see God. They haven't experienced his grace. And instead, they're living in a Cain-oriented religious mindset that they've got to do, 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 and they get burned by that. And so, as we know people in and around these different circumstances, let's be careful not to heap on more religious talk and motivation of, of things that they need to do to be right. Let's do what God does. His, his heart towards Cain is, you can come back. I will accept you, right? And this is where we need to understand the gospel and God's grace. And so, as we think about those that are frustrated and, and, and leaving the church, it's probably legitimate to say that they have not experienced what the true core faith, fruit of faith is. So all the more to play the long game and continue to push them to support that, to encourage them that God, that's not the God of the Bible. God wants a heart, not just our actions, but the actions will follow. So what does it mean that, as we come back to Abel, what does it mean that Abel is commended righteous? Abel's offering was accepted because his heart orientation towards God was one of faith. And God provides a testimony on the witness stand on behalf of Abel that he is righteous. He is righteous by his faithful obedience, not just mere obedience, but faith-filled obedience. And there's something of his heart that is qualitative as he offered the first, firstborn of his flock so to be righteous means that someone is innocent, they're holy, upright, virtuous, pure. And so righteous is something that is in both heart and deed. And Jesus is the example and only perfection of righteousness. It is only through him and his blood and his death that man can become or inherit the righteousness of God. Luther talks about this as an alien righteousness. It's not a righteousness that is possible in and of ourselves. It's got to come from outside somewhere. And as we trust in the, in the person and the work of Jesus, he fills us with the spirit that we are his children and we are made righteous through his 
through him as his presence in our lives and through his work. The righteousness accredited to Abel is not that of his own, but it's his which looks upon and anticipates Jesus as the sacrificial lamb. Abel's faith is first a gift granted to him, but second, it's a model for us to follow that we might learn what it is that God desires from us. And God, he desires that by faith we recognize and worship him as the only one and only God of the universe. He desires by faith that we believe in Jesus, that we might be saved of our sins and live as image bearers, filled with the Spirit amidst a fallen world. He desires by faith that we wait upon his promises to bring about a new kingdom in the new heavens and earth where all things will be restored as they were intended to be in the garden. It is by faith alone that we can be commended as righteous by God, but righteousness is not entirely the end in and of itself. And the second lesson, which is just real brief here at the end, helps clarify this. Second one, by faith alone, one will continue to live and speak even after death. So by faith alone, one will continue to live and speak even after death. So faith enables circumstance is a forward-looking heart orientation that I believe anticipates the raising up of a future offspring who will conquer death and restore relationship with the Father. Righteousness is is only good in the sense that it puts us back into the presence of God in right relationship. And so when we look at Abel, we see the, the, the eternal multiplying fruit of faith. So the text says that Abel's faith speaks to us today. So in one sense, Abel's faith outlives his life and is recorded in the Bible as a testimony to who God is and an encouragement for us to believe. And of all the things that we can acquire and do in our life, the one thing that can live past our life is our faith as a testimony to others and the generations that follow. So Abel's faith speaks to us today and shows us that even our faith can speak to the next generation. We see that also, it's not that just Abel's faith speaks, but Abel is still living in the presence of God. He's still alive. And, and here uh, the, the language says this, uh, says through which he was commended as righteous. Well, it, it unnecessarily puts a past tense in there. It's more which he is being commended as righteous. It's a present verb. So Abel dies and is being commended as righteous before God today, right now. That doesn't point of life beyond this life. I don't know what does. So, for that, we see that faith grants us eternal life and a testimonial witness to others. So, God has granted faith and placed markers of faith this idea of cairns, right? Little rock formations that you see on a trail. He's done that through all of history and recorded in his Bible to see the reward of faith. And as we can look to the Bible and look past to how God has been faithful, we can see that he has worked all the way from the line of Adam to bring Jesus himself. And then through the church and through the work of Jesus, faith that continues to go forward. And so the point of Hebrews is that we can look back and to see that we have a faithful God who is committed to fulfilling his promises. Faith for Abel was forward-looking, but faith in our circumstances, both backward-looking and forward-looking. We look back to the people of old who have gone before us. We look back to the uh, long-anticipated righteous offspring who is Christ himself. We look back to the person and work of Jesus, best depicted in the gospel and the New Testament. But we look forward to the return of Jesus and the final installment of his kingdom here on earth. So like Abel, we are to approach God in faith with the first fruit of our lives, believing in what he has promised and ultimately provided in Christ. 
So end on this note. The righteous blood of Abel points to the righteous blood of Christ. And it is through his blood that we are made righteous. Abel's life and those circumstances are not an accident. They're just the beginning of the story to see the glorious reality through which we will be saved and made righteous like Abel. May God give us faith to believe that, to trust that, and know that God is sure in his promises. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you have been at work from the beginning of history, Lord, from the moment you, you have spoken to create the universe, you have been at work to create a people for yourself, Lord, and to build relationship with us, Lord, that through history and through the ups and downs that we might know something of you and experience the greatness of who you are. So, Lord, help us to see that you've created us to be in relationship with you. But more than that, Lord, or not more than that, but through that, Lord, that in this time where we are not face-to-face with you, Lord, would you give us faith to trust and believe that, Lord, you are doing good. So, Lord, would you be at work? Give us the gift of faith and help us to exercise it. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message recorded at the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcevfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is... Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.